Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, the following program is produced with a professional vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Howard Lapidus is around here somewhere. I got uh, fact checker Mark Boyer. And my limerick for today is, there once was a journalist named Stevie who wrote a book about a pig farmer, most sleazy. She could make veal cordon bleu. She knows lots of Jews. And getting her on the air wasn't easy. Stevie Cameron. <laughs> How you doing? Oh, oh, my goodness. How do I answer that one? Yeah. Now, that's an intro you haven't had before, isn't it? It's certainly, it's certainly, I'm going to have to teach you a little bit more about writing on Okay, bring down the pigs. We have pigs in the background. We're going to bring those down so we can hear you. Howard Lapidus, uh, who's not one of the pigs I mentioned, he's been called a bottom feeder but never a pig, uh, executive producer of Celebrity Rehab, and uh, he handles uh, Dr. Drew's personal problems. <laughs> And now he's putting his headphones on. There we go. Welcome, Howard. Uh, it's good. Stevie? Yes. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. That's good. We were looking forward to talking to you a couple of weeks ago, and now we have the pleasure. It's I know, good. and I totally, totally messed up. And well, we're, not, really we're, not gonna we're not going to beat up over We're not going to beat you up over We're not going to go back over that one no, again? No, no, but I was excited because I think you were living in Ottawa when I was, and, and, and it's just a great time in life and times. And yeah, your office was right down the street from hers. Is that? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Is that right? Well, I, did you? Did you work at the Citizen for a while? Yes, I did. I worked there for several years. Uh, did you work? Were you on Baxter Road? I was on Baxter Road for for out in the, that was our big office out in the boonies, right. and then I moved downtown to be a political reporter on uh, on the uh, in Parliament. So yeah, I, was, I, was I was in the next I was in the next building on Baxter, you know, where the Citizen was, and then the next building yeah. next. Yeah, well, we got to get to get our map out and show it to our audience. Yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, really excited to hear about. I'm that. just excited <laughs> to, to talk to Stevie because <laughs> I know. From where she henses. Yeah, from where your henses. She henses from... What, what kind of word is henses? Henses? Uh, you, you know what? I looked in the Yiddish dictionary. I didn't see Turns it. out everybody knows what it means. Yeah? Henses. henses, yes. Yeah, okay. Thank you. You want to ask her if she was an informant or not? Well, I already know she was. Yeah? For the RCMP? Hell, I was. Okay. And I was ask, ask, ask Stevie the question. Yeah. Stevie. Yeah. Howard, ask her the question. Were you an informant for the RCMP? No, I wasn't. I wasn't, and they finally admitted it. Okay. So uh, they, uh, I didn't know, I didn't understand that situation until I was working on the Picton uh, uh, murder book when they had to try to get a um, search warrant to search the Picton property, and there was a lot of uh, speculation that they made up all the information on the search warrant so that they could get it from a judge and get on the property. Well, that's what the RCMP did to me. They needed to... uh, search a helicopter company's offices and they didn't have a search warrant and so they made one up sealed it made it secret uh, never named me but said their informant had met with them uh, had contact with them over 600 times and had all this information about the helicopter company and then it was leaked that i was the informant but i didn't know anything about the helicopter you must have been awfully surprised i was surprised horrified uh, the police had, um, uh, I, I don't know who leaked this to a reporter, but it was leaked. And I finally uh, forced the man, the police officer, to in charge of that investigation to go into court, and he admitted that everything he said about me was untrue. Now, how could they get a search warrant based on lies like that? Well, it was a very big deal. It was a, uh, they, well, they wouldn't have checked. They would have believed a superintendent of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police who was in charge of a major uh, corruption investigation involving the Prime Minister of Canada. What, what be involved in corruption himself? Wow. Whoa, whoa, back up. Which Prime Minister? Brian Mulroney. Mm-hmm. And he had a great friend called Carl Heinz Schreiber, mm-hmm. who's now in prison in Germany, who uh, for what? obtained... What's Schreiber in prison for? Schreiber's in prison for um, uh, bribing uh, German uh, politicians and for taking bribes on the sale of uh, several aircraft from Airbus Industries mm-hmm. to Air Canada. He's also, he, he also got involved in a huge scandal that brought down the head of the German government. Uh, so it was, uh, the Germans were after him. He fled to Canada, but he had been bribing Canadians as well over the uh, Airbus deal. Air Canada bought a whole fleet of aircraft from Airbus and payments were made to many layers of people. And that was, uh, that was proven. That's a big story. Yes, yes, that was proven. And I wrote a book about it. Right. 
So and, uh, uh, you're he, famous. Uh, wow. Well, anyway, <laughs> I was uh, the so-called informant for them on part of that deal, which was a helicopter purchase as well. And then until they had finally admitted that uh, the police officer was not reprimanded, as far as I know, nothing happened to him. Uh, but he needed a search warrant, yeah. and I saw the police having a terrible time getting a search warrant for the Picton farm in British Columbia. So I began to understand, you know, why they might make something up and have it sealed. Now I want to get into this this Picton case because uh, you might explain to our audience we've we've done this before, but there's a difference between the United States and Canada in many ways, and one of them has to do with coverage of cases such as this. Uh, you couldn't be putting this book out or writing it as it went along, could you? I mean, or have it published as it went along. No, I couldn't. I, I, my publishers did ask me to write a short book uh, after I'd been on it about three years. They said, listen, it's going to be years before we get to tell these stories. Would you write a book about what you can tell us now and a personal book about what it's been like to work on this case? So I did take a year and do that, and that's the, called The Picton File. It's really about what a, a reporter goes through to try to get a story like this. And, and it's got all the information that was public at the time, but... We need, we need the to tell the audience what, what, what this yeah. is. And then I'll give you a little, just a little background. When I was to personalize it for me, because I'm so important, when, <laughs> when I was working uh, on, on my book, Body Count, about the Spokane serial killer and interviewing all the working women who were afraid of getting killed there, they were talking about what was going on in Vancouver. And that many, many uh, working women, in other words, prostitutes, women of high-risk lifestyles, were disappearing. They were sure there was a serial killer and that the cops were not interested at all. And one of the fascinating things that you lay out in your book is why the cops weren't doing anything. I think you gave us three reasons. Could you recount those for us on why the cops were ignoring this? Well, one of the reasons was that uh, they didn't want to have to spend the money that this would cost. They just didn't feel they had a budget that would handle a huge investigation like this. They also didn't have any bodies. That was their main excuse. There were no bodies. And uh, so they said, you know, how can we prove there's been a murder when we have no bodies? And the third reason was, uh, according to Kim Rossmo, who was a very distinguished member of that force and fired for insisting that there was a serial killer at least, and Kim said to me that uh, he, they basically didn't know how to do an investigation of that size and complexity. Can we, for the audience, kind of just quickly summarize the case and why, by the way, there were no bodies? Sure, the case is about a um, pig farmer who lived in a small town called Coquitlam, about 30 miles from Vancouver, and uh, he uh, came from a very difficult family, uh, had a very rough uh, childhood, and he was a frequent visitor to the Vancouver's downtown east side, which is an area well known for biker activity, prostitution, and drug use, Mm -hmm. and uh, he was taking the women out of that community, mostly, not all of them, two or three came from other parts of the area, but but most of them came from the downtown east side, and he took them back to his, uh, he would offer to pay them far far more than they would normally get for a sex act in the downtown east side, he would offer to them $100 instead of 10, and all the free drugs they wanted. So they'd get in his his van, and away they'd go to the farm, and he would uh, have sex with them, then he would stab them or shoot them in the head or strangle them and then he would uh, cut up the bodies in his slaughterhouse and uh, dispose of them and he had various methods of disposal he had pigs he had barrels that he would fill with human remains and take down to a rendering plant in vancouver and he also buried the bodies uh, or he would dismember them and put the parts in a freezer can i have to ask you to back up let's start with the pigs so he would take the body parts and throw them in with the pigs? Is that what you're saying? Yes, he did. And the <coughs> and pigs I, would dine on the on the remains? Well, yes. The, the problem is that there's no, you know, there's no evidence of that. I think he removed the bones, because mm-hmm. pigs probably didn't eat the bones. He had about 30 or 40 bone pits on the property. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had 104 forensic anthropology students who went down into those bone pits brought up the bone and uh, the their uh, supervisors would decide whether it was animal or human bone okay and it was and then the second method of disposal well this was a simpler one he would simply uh, uh, cut them all up he, he had a slaughterhouse it was perfectly capable of doing that with a um, 
uh, saw, and he would uh, cut them into pieces and then put them in barrels, take them off to a rendering plant, a massive rendering plant on the uh, waterfront in Vancouver, and dump them into the bins there. And he was a regular customer with his uh, animals, you know, the leftover animal parts, and uh, so they were used to him. Never, no one ever paid any attention to him. And they were rendered into... Well, the rendering plant takes, basically, it's oils, and the oils are used for uh, cosmetics, uh, for fertilizer, in the bone would be used for fertilizer, um, and you know what about what bone meal is, and uh, they would be piped into, the oils would be piped into big tankers and taken all over the world and sold. Now, in addition to having this pig farm, in case people think this is just some, some poor guy with a little pig operation, this guy was a millionaire. <coughs> That's right, he was. He was. Uh, he and his brothers inherited, or his brother and sister, he had a, one brother and one sister, who inherited a family property, and they had been selling it off for years to developers. It's very close to Vancouver, and uh, even the 14 acres that were left when he was caught uh, were prob- are probably, at this point, worth 40, 50, 60 million dollars. So the guy could have afforded to buy just about any entertainment he wanted. Unfortunately, the entertainment he wanted was rather grisly. Yes. Did he have a pathology that prohibited him from letting the women go? No, he did let the, occasionally. He did let women go. He he uh, would be fond of somebody, and uh, he would let her would let them go. There was one amazing witness uh, who he who fought back. Uh, who was not too drugged or too drug sick to to re- resist him? She she fought back, nearly killed him. He nearly killed her. Yeah. Oh yeah. They the both went one, to the same hospital. They wound up at the same hospital. And she, when she got there, there was when she was taken there by ambulance, there was no pulse and no blood left in her. But they were able to get her breathing again and get her get blood pumped in, and she's alive and well now. And she testified at the preliminary hearing, but not at the trial. Yeah, I found that absolutely amazing that, that uh, you know, what he does, he'd be having sex with these women from behind, and then he would garret them, or in this case, he took a knife and stabbed her, and she turns around and gets the knife away and stabs him. <laughs> Got to give her, she had a lot of she spunk. A, she was the best witness that I saw in all those years. She was just an outstanding very memorable young woman. And then there were also, there was a woman, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, who knew what he was doing, who saw, uh, I think, with a body hanging on a meat hook or something, and he warned her, don't say anything, and he let her live, let her go, a friend of his or something. Well, she was working uh, in the trailer with him. She, he often had women living with him, uh, and she did desk work and phone calls, answered orders for, for soil and the stuff that they sold on that farm. And, uh, but he didn't, he never slept with her. He just provided her with drugs and some money and and uh, she kept the place clean very bizarre did any of them help him with his uh, deadly deeds we think that not her but we think that there were two other women who would bring women to the farm mm-hmm. and probably knew what he was doing but they were so dependent on him for money and drugs that they just uh, kept quiet <clears throat> what kind of uh, body count are we looking at here he's admitted to 49 uh, murders he uh which would put him on a par with the Green River Killer. And when he was questioned, uh, you know, by the police, and we've watched, I've watched those videotapes again and again and again, he certainly made it clear he was aware of the record of the Green River he wanted Killer. To be, uh, he wanted to make it an even 50. Wasn't he a little bit frustrated That's that it. he only got to 49? And, die, I really wanted to get to 50. At that point, why didn't you just say 50? I mean, who's, <laughs> who's going to know? Who's going to know? Well, he was keeping an accurate count. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that's I mean, one thing I like about a guy like that. At least he tells the truth. <laughs> As compared uh, to the... Well, he, was a, he, he was a great numbers guy. You ask him something, and he could remember a date. He could remember... You know, he liked to say it was in December 1st, 1951, or, yes, I went there six times. I mean, he was he was numerate. It was very weird, and he certainly knew exactly... He's not an idiot, then. So, uh, how, how, how old was he when all this was going on? He would have been in his uh, 40s and 50s. I think today he's around 62, 63, something like that. Kind of one of my contemporaries. The so thing what is, when, when I was talking to some of the working women, as I referred to them at that time, they knew. I mean, I would hear them say that, that it's a pig farm in Vancouver and, they, and that the cops aren't doing anything. So, so there must have, there was knowledge amongst people or suspicion amongst people. Yes, and uh, And I read about the mother of one of the victims went to the farm and would, like, peek over the fence and stuff. 
Well, I, I don't know about that. I, I, I've interviewed her many times. She never told me that. Uh, but she certainly has stated that. So, you know, that's the discussion for another time, I think, with her. But <clears throat> she's, uh, there is some, some speculation about whether that happened or when it happened. But she certainly did go to the downtown east side and look for her daughter. And, and he was one of, one of the six convictions. Uh, it, it does include that girl. When, uh, what were the time frames for the murders? Well, he started, I think they feel the first one was 1991, but I think there was probably one earlier than that. They say that for sure they know he started in 1991, uh, um, and then right right up till uh, about three months before he was arrested. Hmm. Which was? So that we, he was arrested on February the 5th, 2002. So f- say so 11 to, years. Yeah. So, so a journalist... That's that's kind of what you were doing before. I mean, how does <laughs> Stevie, you wind Stevie, with Stevie, a pig, How Stevie? the hell did you wind up on this story, and then and then in gro- after hey, you had to engross yourself to, in order to come up with the product. eight years? I loved it. I it's funny. I was I'm so sick of crooked politicians. I was. They all feel the same way. They mm-hmm. all hide their money the same way. Right. And in Canada, because our libel laws are so strict. You can never say anything about them. I mean, they will threaten. If your publishers think that there's going to be a lawsuit, they start cleaning up your copy. Yep. And the, uh, it's one of the great shames of Canadian journalism that journalists are restricted from publishing what they know to be true, but they can pr- even what they can prove to be true. We have to be able to prove it. But if we think, if our publishers think it's going to, the person that we're writing about is very wealthy and very powerful. That most of the time uh, the story gets killed. Or I found, it gets I found the, down. Ca- the Canadian journalists that I found, and I, I had experience, uh, you know, and not to even talk about my past, but I spent an awful lot of time on Wellington uh, in the press club. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it, you saw there how the press would nuzzle up to the politicians. It, it was like, wait a minute, you know, is he working the story or is he going to tell a story that's different? And and I, I was always suspect because they were they were always careful and and uh, uh, that must the, be the, very frustrating. Well, the degree of journalism is a little different and was a little different, and uh, I think continues yeah. to be different. It's probably what knocked you into the into the. It's not into the pig farm. She's uh, into no, the pig I, farm business. You know it's funny. The, I I was able to to write some amazing books, and, mm-hmm. and I wrote a book called On the Take. That was the name of it. We had Brian Mulroney's picture on the cover and on the back. Wow, boy, boy, you go after you like Brian, huh? In a, in a dinner jacket. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I had great sources. They were on the record. I had a brave publisher. I had very, very good legal advice. And uh, we just did it. And, and it was, uh, I mean, it was a huge bestseller. And then, you know, after that, I did two more books like that. They didn't sell quite as well, but they were they were very tough. But I noticed as the years went on with those books, as I worked on them, that the concern about libel got um, more and more uh, um, increased. And, and so the books, and the last book, I had a different lawyer, different publisher, and it was completely watered down. Oh. Of course, one thing you you don't have in Canada that's a plus is you don't have trial by talk show and indictment by soundbite. Well, yeah, but that's where I get I get crazy because uh, uh, you know look what happened in Ontario with uh, what's the case the, the, uh, the uh, Bernard Bernardi uh, Bernardo yeah Paul the, Bernardo. The, the Paul Bernardo case and, and I mean and you can help the audience because I'm I'm kind of stumbling through it but there was just plain no press in Toronto or Southern Ontario about this guy that was just a, this, uh, the most grisly of murders. Well, this was, yes, there was a, somebody who was raping women. He was going through windows, uh, going into their places and raping them, and they did not put out a warning uh, to people who lived in the area where he was operating. And I've never really understood why, but the police were, um, you know, very much taken to task for that later. It turned out it was Paul Bernardo, but he moved to a different jurisdiction. He moved to a small town called St. Catharines, some right. distance from Toronto, and that's where he murdered three but other... It was just women. the other side of the Golden Horseshoe. I mean, you're in you're, right. you're in Toronto now. St. Catharines is an hour and a half from you. But but right. the way the bird and the way the crow flies, St. Catharines is really, what, 30, 40 miles. It's, it's almost a suburb. But, yeah. it, but he did move, and there were big jurisdictional problems with the police. The, and that's what you're seeing with Picton as well. We have a Ontario Provincial Police, which is the biggest 
uh, police force. We had the Metropolitan Toronto Police, and then we have the St. Catharines Police, and they were all, they just couldn't get it together. But if you wanted news on that case, you had to listen to Buffalo News. That's right. Well, That's meanwhile, getting back to our, our poor, our poor, our wealthy pig farmer and all the women he is uh, murdering and uh, keeping an accurate track, uh, I notice in your book you mentioned that the, the, this attitude of the police just dumbfounds me, that there was someone else who was uh, murdering women prior to this guy, and I think he was, uh, uh, like, drugging them up or putting drops in their drinks, uh, and... They'd find a body and they go, oh, it's one of his. Yes. But yes. they never did anything about it. Well, no, he eventually was was caught and convicted and uh, sent to jail. And then I think he, he finally got out again. And then he, I think he may be back in prison now. But he was a man, man who who actually uh, poisoned his victims with too much alcohol. They, you know, it was a day when alcohol was the drug of choice as opposed to cocaine or you know the other things that they are using now so and heroin and you know dope so he uh he was poisoning them with alcohol and he encouraged them to chug a lug their drink and watch and then he watched them die yeah die of alcohol poisoning yeah. what a charming gentleman we're going to take a 60 second break order a ham sandwich we'll be right back hey, <laughs> with the national bestseller on the farm author stevie cameron we'll be right back There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoke and drink and interrupted, did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow. Now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes App Store. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear. Yes. And And Howard Lapidus. Thank you. How about Mark? Do we get to mention Mark this time? Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. Thank you. And sometimes Marie Mackey. Esquire. Esquire. Thank you. Marie has been on the show since Produced by Magic Matthew Allen. She's the late 60s. Who produces him? Who in turn is produced by Laurie Downey Jr. Oh, good. We got that all cleared up. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Burl Bear. That's Howard. That's Mark. We got Stevie Cameron on the phone. Winner of the Arthur Ellis Award for Best F- Crime Nonfiction. Fiction finalist for the BC National Award for Canadian Nonfiction. And her book, as you can tell by the pigs in the background, On the Farm. Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women. The book is about the size of uh, the Talmud. F- <laughs> for those who are what is this? Away they fly. Okay, enough of that. Come if on. pigs <laughs> had wings. Okay, thank you. Uh, Stevie, you still there? Have you walked out in disgust? <laughs> no, I'm still here. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> this is disgusting here. I don't know how she's done her work. <laughs> no, this I'm book, I've got to I gotta tell the audience and you, Steve, I've, I've read the book, which is, I mean, the, this book I is... taken a month. Yeah, it's a big book. You know, I mean, this is, we're talking heavy literature here. Lots of words. Lots of words. Many of your favorite words are in the book, friends. <laughs> a lot of my favorite words are in there. A hell of a lot of work. Did this thing have to get edited down to make it this big? Yes, it was edited down. But I was, I was very lucky. I had a publisher who, my publisher was my editor. She loved the story, too. She 
used to come to court with me in Vancouver. She'd come out. She lives in Toronto, and she would come out there, and we'd go to court. And she'd meet the families, meet the uh, court officials, and uh, meet all my sources. And so speaking know, of court, what was going on this last week? I mean, this guy's already in the slammer. Why? What was this hearing about that you were in court for? It was a. It's not a hearing. It's a public inquiry into what, why, why the police uh, screwed up so badly. What went wrong? Why wasn't he caught much earlier? So they're putting the uh, uh, feet to the fire. They had the former police chief of Vancouver in, the man who, their former Mountie who headed the investigation was in, and they just get excoriated. You know, why didn't you, why did you take so long? How did you screw up here, there? And so that's what's been going on. What do you think? How did they? Why did they? Why, why, why? They didn't know how. I know, but what are the, she's got the answers. (laughs) No, seriously, you've got, you do have the, you you have the answers. I think part of it, you know, the, the thing we haven't talked about is the fact that these women were not valued. That's important. Well, yeah, that, there you go. 49 uh, hookers from the east side of Vancouver. Who cares? Well, yeah, yeah, their families. They're, you know, uh, women of high risk. Yeah, well, and the, the people who, who, who knew them in the downtown east side cared. They, but uh, the cops didn't but, care. No, the cops in Vancouver didn't care. No. And they, some of them did. You know, there was testimony by a young woman called Lori Shen, who, who was the only cop on that case. And she wept as she described. A woman, her. right? A woman. Yeah. Okay, hey, let's give it to the woman. Well, no, that's what the the woman somehow had some sort of there was a, a relation. She relate that didn't relate to the girls, but she's a woman. They're women, and women are treated differently anyway on a good day. These are bad days. It was a it was a terrible time, and the police were incompetent. Uh, they hated their expert on serial killers, Kim Rossman, who's now in Texas. Mm-hmm. He's, he's trained the tobacco the, and firearms unit, you know, what do you call that? The ATF. Um, the, yes. Right. And the FBI. And, you know, he worked on the sniper case in Washington. Mm-hmm. He's, he's used all over the world. He's trained Scotland Yard. He's, uh, you know, trained the police forces all over Europe, all over the United States. He's now living in the United States. And the Vancouver police didn't believe any of his. Yeah, they brought in all these experts. Didn't they also profilers, like a team, to examine this case at one time? Uh, they did. Well, not this case. This was one, one much earlier. And again, they dismissed all of them. They, and they brought up one of the best American experts on serial killers this time for Picton, a man called Roy Hazelwood. I'm sure you know his uh-huh. name. And Roy Hazelwood was one of the Quantico profilers. And he uh, looked at this case gave them advice, and they just sent him home and said, well, thank you, but, you know, we don't agree with you, and see you later. So who was covering who? Ma. I think that they just, they, I mean, it was clear to me all the way through the, uh, all the trial proceedings that the RCMP, who did a very, very good job once they were on the game, uh, really have no use for profilers, even though they have some in their mm-hmm. midst. And, why, uh, why not? Why? Oh, I think they think it's all... But but, but who's got hokum? Is that right? Yeah. It's like the FBI uh, culture of guns. If you don't shoot guns, you don't become an agent. Yeah. Well, back to the but back to this. I I mean, but somebody someplace gave the order to sandbag this case. Somebody, the buck stopped someplace. Well, it stopped with the senior officers with the Vancouver Police, Mm -hmm. and they they had to. they made a decision that this was not important. They didn't like uh, the uh, profiler, uh, Kim Rosmo. They fired him, uh, and he sued. He didn't get anywhere. He wound up working in Washington at that time as the head of uh, research for the police. He, he sued for what did he sue for? And so he, you know, he sued. Yes, he did sue. He didn't win. For what? And what? what, what, what for wrongful dismissal. Okay. And they did have the authority to fire him, and the judge said he was treated very badly, but they did. But, you know, he did come and testify, and he talked about why it was a tragedy that they hadn't taken his advice, that they hadn't understood they were working with a serial killer. So they got rid of that whole cadre of police officers at the top in the Vancouver police. But, but All what, of them are gone. What I don't understand is how, uh, you know, when you have that many police... Um what do you call them? Right? You've got Vancouver Police, RCMP. You had is there a BC Police? There must be a provincial police. No, also, there's no provincial police. It's the RCMP. So it's our, all RCMP and, and British Columbia. Okay, but but it, wouldn't the RCMP police 
the Vancouver police? I mean, you know, when they, I mean, could they not see? Well, the, the well, Vancouver Howard, police, somebody was covering it up. No, there was. I don't think it was a cover up. I think there was a a determination. There, here was another problem. They could not believe there'd be two serial killers working in the downtown east side. They know, knew the three women had disappeared, and they had the DNA of a killer. They tested Picton because he was a suspect, and they found his DNA did not match that of a killer of these three women who died, taken out of the downtown east side and taken up to the Fraser Valley. And so he was known as the Valley Killer. They still haven't caught him. How far up the Fraser Valley was it? Oh, it was spaced out to... Uh, Quite, quite some distance, I would say about 40 miles okay. Okay. away from Vancouver. Um, but, you know, they thought it was Picton, and it wasn't Picton, and so they thought, well, then that phrase of the Valley Killer, whom they still have not caught must be responsible for these other women. Right. So they, now, we get to chapter chapter 26 of your book, Panic on Skid Row. Just let me give the the opening paragraph here. There was no question. The numbers were down. 1997, 13 women had disappeared. In 1998, it was 11. Five vanished in 99. Getting close to Christmas 2000, looked as if the tally might be only one so far, Tiffany Drew. Uh, and someone says, oh, no, she's in a recovery house, doesn't want to see anybody from her past. Uh, she's not really gone at all, but the people on the street weren't buying that. I mean, the, the body count is rising. The people on the street know what's going on. Yeah. And it, I mean, and I'm hearing about it in Washington. I'm hearing about it in, from the hookers in Spokane are talking about it. I mean, the public no. must have known. Did the public, was the public aware of how many killings were going on? Well, they weren't aware until the Vancouver Sun in 1999 wrote a series of stories. And uh, the families were reaching the, the reporter at the Vancouver Sun, uh, Lindsay Kynes, and he started writing stories. I started reading them. So I organized a, a big major feature in a magazine I was running, a national magazine, and asked a writer in Vancouver to do it for me, and he did a brilliant job. So that was the first national story on this. And uh, then they just got a lucky break. They had a way to get on the farm to get a search warrant, finally. He was, the, he was the prime suspect from 1999 on, but they asked the RCMP were in that jurisdiction where his farm was. Vancouver police ran the jurisdiction in the downtown east side, and they clashed all the time. Hmm. But finally, when Picton was arrested in 2002, the Vancouver police board essentially got rid of all the senior cadre of officers who had opposed an investigation, and they replaced... Uh, they didn't even bring in a Vancouver police officer to be the new chief. They brought in a Mountie. And Mark Boyer has a question. Mark, go ahead. Along along Burroughs' lines, I, uh, before he mentioned it, I was curious as I was reviewing the material that at some point the women knew something was wrong. Why would they go? They would go because they... They were many of them were afraid of Willie, but there was safety in numbers. They thought there was safety in numbers, so they would go because Willie had a couple of women in the downtown east side that he was friends with. He kept them supplied with dope and money, and they would lure the women out. They'd say, "We're going out. It's going to be safe." Oh, okay. Yeah, that was safe, was it? I had the same situation. Uh, you know, they, they get to become afraid, and they go all into a denial process too. That's not going to happen right. to me. And these women, these women did go into some of the shelters and so on, some of the hotels, the single-room occupancy hotels down there, and they would lure the women out. They'd say, Willie will pay you 100 bucks, and he's safe, and don't worry, he's safe, he's a good guy. So out the, the women would go, and they'd, they'd never come back. Ooh, I wouldn't trust those women to send me anywhere. Well, they were, they were looked at. And it's uh, funny that I, they were never charged. They, they all gave uh, evidence. And the worst one of the bunch finally died of cancer uh, a couple of years ago. So we knew that she was dying, and I didn't think we figured she wouldn't be charged, and she wasn't. Yeah. Well, sometimes they cut deals. If you'll be a witness, we'll give you immunity, that sort of thing. Well, that's what they did with Lynn Ellingson. And she was the only uh, eyewitness to a murder that did testify. And what did she tell What did she tell them? She said that she was uh, sleeping, she was with Picton when they picked up a girl in the downtown east side, and uh, that they brought her back, and they, he went to, he gave the girl some dope, and she, uh, Lynn Ellingson went into her own room to uh, have her own dope, and she heard a scream later on, and she looked out the window and saw a light in the slaughterhouse, she went out and had a look, and he was out there uh, skinning 
one of the women, the woman that oh. we brought out there, and he had her on a hook in his slaughterhouse, and he was skinning her. Well, that's about the time I'd be late for the door. <laughs> so, excuse me, I have an important uh, appointment. Uh, <laughs> I gotta go. See her. Well, she was terrified of him, and and but she did testify. But it was very, very hard for them to get for the police to get her to testify, and they looked after her. They babysat her for years, and uh, she was always a wreck. Oh, I would imagine so. Because even just seeing something like that would be enough to traumatize you. Yeah. Was uh, there? Um, did he provide any kind of um, of, of information or, or, or on, on what was going through his mind or nope. motivations, that kind of thing? Nope, he didn't. He, he denied it in, uh, for a long, long time, and then he just played sort of cat and mouse. Uh, maybe I'll tell you, maybe I won't. But he he basically admitted to uh, the head of the missing women's task force that he'd killed forty nine women. Uh, no, he didn't. He admitted it to an undercover agent in his cell. In his cell, yeah. Uh, they planted uh, a guy in his cell, yeah. Yeah, but he didn't uh, ever admit it to uh, the police during the uh, interrogation. He only would admit to three or four. So what's your... What's your, what's your you only admitted to killing three or four people. What's your, what, uh, come again. What's your read on this guy? I mean, what 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 was his motivation? What Where did he get off the tracks? He was... He's, he's got low intelligence, but it's normal. I mean, it's normal low. He uh, was brought up very rough, but so were his brother and sister, and they're not serial killers. I think he's one of those very rare creatures, and they are rare, serial killers. Mm -hmm. You two know more about them than I do, but, he, you know, there aren't that many like that. There are not as many that are as prolific like that. He, You know what? He liked doing it. That's right. That's what Brent Turvey said. Have you ever read Brent Turvey's material? As they tried it, they liked it, they did it again. So there's, but there's a tipping point. There's a place where you know. Well, would you agree, Stevie? It starts off as fantasy, and then they cross the line and make that fantasy reality. That's once right. they've done it once, you might as well do it again because it doesn't matter whether you've killed one or three or fifty-three. And why? Why did he? Uh, you know, sometimes strangle them, sometimes shot them. Why, why was he so uh, had this potpourri of uh, <laughs> methods? I think he just used whatever method was close to hand. I think he. I think what he probably loved was the power. He was ugly. He stank, but he was a millionaire, and he could force these women to come out there. And then he had many ways to get rid of the bodies, and I think so, he enjoyed that part too. Well, so, with all his money, he couldn't uh, couldn't grab a shower. <laughs> That's the strange nope. thing. Neither nope. because his mother had a goatee. I found that fascinating. <laughs> I mean, if anybody who says, you know, like, any girl who thinks she's not, no, no, any woman out there says, oh, I'll never get a man, you know, I'm not pretty enough. This woman was <laughs> able to get a husband and four kids, and she had a goatee. I know, you will wonder never ceased. Yeah. That must be, maybe that was one of the reasons you look at his mom and go, mom's got more facial hair than, than I do. No, I, I, I think so. I think he was just crazy. I think he was, I think he's just one of those people. I mean, they're very rare. You know that, a gacy. Is rare. Uh, the, you know, some of the wondrous boys you've had in the states—they're really very rare. Mm, thank goodness. I was reading uh, in your wonderful book, which everyone should buy immediately, national bestseller *On the Farm* by Stevie Cameron, where this uh, this fellow says to him, "The truth is, Willie, you're probably going to be the largest serial killer in Canadian history. You're going to be a famous guy. You'll have achieved something. You'll have eluded police for years, but now it's over." But uh, Willie didn't respond. No, he's just smart. smart. Yeah. Then he tried to appeal to his conscience. Don't you feel bad about this, Willie? <laughs> and Willie said, we have to take a 60-second break for a commercial message, and then we'll be back with much more murders. Uh, we'll be back with Stevie Cameron in just a minute on True Crime Uncensored. If pigs had wings, away they'd fly. Barbara Opal promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand-new dirt bike if she'd murder her employer. You know that. It's my book, Mom Said Kill. The kid didn't get the dirt bike. Well, guess what? The book is now available as a digital download from Barnes & Noble. Mom Said Kill by Burl Bear, the new digital edition. And you know what? Even in the digital edition, the kid still doesn't get the dirt bike. Mom Said Kill by me, Burl Bear. And I love me to pieces.
Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. If pigs had wings, away they'd fly. Ah, yes. Thank you. <laughs> pigs could fly. Oh, God. Yeah. On the Farm by Stevie Kim, and as long as I'm plugging books, I have three coming out this year. Hey, 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 hey Burl. How about that? <laughs> I might That's as well great. plug my own books. <laughs> So, yeah, it was easy to do because they're re-releases. Uh, Stevie Cameron's book, On the Farm, uh, the size of, uh, boy, an Encyclopedia Britannica. It's not that huge, but it's a, it's a big book. It's, it's the size of the Torah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's a large Speaking of which, Stevie, you lived in, uh, in Israel for a while. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Your That's husband fun. was teaching at uh, Hebrew University. He was teaching at the Hebrew University, and I was having a good time. Actually, <laughs> I was working on this book at the time, but I, I loved Israel, and I had a lovely time. We've been there many times. Oh, uh, yeah. I like it, too, except you go to Haifa, you got to walk up the hill so much. Like... Hey, babe. Too much walking. I was local. walking. You sound like a local. Yeah. There's too much walking. It was a good experience for us, and we still go there and we still have friends there and uh, it's an interesting place for us because we're not Jewish and therefore we're free anywhere you know we we have our Jewish friends won't go into certain areas of the country or certain right. areas of the city of, of Jerusalem and we go wherever we want what, what do we have to do to bring you over to the dark side here <laughs> you know, come on. Be an honorary you've, been, Jew. you've been to Israel so many times. Let's go. We can just, I have. I have. Uh, got, I'd you know, like to set my next book there. We have a portable mikvah. We'll bring it over here. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do everything here. Yes, we do. Your husband needs a bris. We can do that, too. Not a problem. <laughs> well, Burl, you are an old cut-up. Yeah, an old cut-up. Yeah, that's right. You can't say that in Canadian radio. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, because... I, I spent 10 years in Canadian radio, so I'm... Uh, hey, you were on Dan Zapansky show. Have you read Dan Zapansky? book that's what will make you throw up <laughs> the, no, thank God. oh okay. yeah. it's a great book but it's the most disgusting uh it was most disgusting cases how about this about. you want disgusting i used to manage mike bullard so uh, did so don't start oh, no you didn't <laughs> i don't even know who that is which i guess she did a good job managing him oh she does oh i know him yeah. i did i did a great job managing him yeah oh, well. got him his when own he, show when he was doing the uh, show in the old uh uh, building on the, the, the Masonic. In the Masonic Temple. Yeah, down at Davenport and Young. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're putting out a yeah, map yeah, guide for we don't need to do this. But the, the answer to that question is, is I founded that show, yes. It was originally called Open Mic with Mike McDonald, but that's another story. He used to manage Mike McDonald, too. Still do. Oh, he still do. Yeah, huh? Still that's good. McDonald's brother. Uh, no, Norm McDonald's oh. Neil's brother. Norm okay. Norm McDonald's Neil's brother Mike McDonald is a an older uh, comic but yeah okay. but yeah no I managed Norm also and uh, and no Neil Neil's a great he Canadian discovered girl. Canada actually I Howard did, did. Was she, yeah. well, she's, she's, she's starting to she's starting to get who I am yeah well Neil McDonald and I worked together at the Ottawa Citizen we yes. investigative team there yeah, do you remember I think, I think very highly of him he's wonderful Neil's a great guy and he used to write about me and the my my shenanigans when I was uh, promoting all the concerts in Ottawa while you were there and you know oh. you know chris cobb and uh very well chris, one of my hey who is who is the chris chick is with the uh, bikini picture for vanity fair that well that was bonnie fuller it was was bonnie hurwitz when she worked at the citizen and she okay. uh, she went on to uh, run star magazine and us magazine and uh glamour and uh the helen Gurley brown uh magazine cosmo, cosmo cosmo and she's now doing hollywood life but she worked at the citizen as an intern. She also worked at the Toronto Star. She worked at the Star for many years, and her boyfriend, yeah. Jonathan Gross, who I don't know if you ever ran into Jonathan, no. worked at Ottawa Today, which was that rag that was yeah, there for two minutes. Remember that thing? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, that's, that's another, we, 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 whole we, another we, life. We, it's another life, another and life. we could... Yes, we could, we could serial killer days. I loved yeah. it. It was... Uh, uh, it was a lot of fun in Ottawa. But you were close. So Chris Cobb was a good friend of yours. We he was the entertainment editor. Yep. I was the lifestyles editor. Yep. And we our desks faced each other, so we know knew far too much about each other's lives. <laughs> Chris used to write about me all the time. God bless him. And. <laughs> You know, yeah. when I ran Trouble Cliff and, and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, now and then he figured he found some real newsworthy items to write about. Well, that's right. I mean, I, <laughs> but I, I created so much trouble. Uh, I and, bet and you did. When I was in Ottawa, I created a lot of trouble, and Chris will tell you about it. Hey, uh, Stevie, i got to ask you. I mean, here you go. You investigate this horrifying story in Vancouver, which is one of the most beautiful cities on Earth. And then you take this information and you go over to Israel, which is an entirely different atmosphere. 
and you're writing this book about the murderous pig farmer while you're you're sitting in a holy land. That must have been a little bit of cognitive dissonance, or was it a mitzvah, a blessing? It was very nice because I, I was so removed from everything else. I didn't have any other temptations. So I, But I did have the temptations of Israel, which, I, you know, I really do love the country. My husband was teaching at the Hebrew University, and he serves on a board of advisors there. So he's... Um, we have many, many friends there, and I absolutely loved it. So it was a very nice break for me. What's his uh, subject? Uh, I had a friend in the German colony who ran a bead shop, and I learned how to make jewelry. And I, I fooled around. I did a blog on it, and I, I met wonderful people. I, I tell you, I really loved it. I still love it. We go there whenever we can. One thing I found fascinating uh, going through Jerusalem, I was on, on, a, on a bus, and the, the bus driver was Muslim, the tour guide was Jewish, and some of the people on the bus were so shocked at this, and they laughed, because these, these people were best friends, and they drive around Jerusalem and said, now, in America, don't you have Protestants and Catholics working together, and who are friends together, yet you can hear on the news sometimes about, you know, in Ireland blowing each other up, he says, you know, considering the percentages of people, of you know, who's on the fringe, and you're going around Jerusalem, you got the Muslims, you got the Jews, of course, you're in Haifa, they call the city of peace and uh, good heavens you got everybody it's a real uh, more of a mosaic than a melting pot people are getting along they they are getting along and it's heartbreaking though to see that there's still such divisions i had a friend uh armenian christian who lived in bethlehem and she would not come into our area of israel of, of jerusalem because she was regarded as a palestinian Street. And she was a social worker in a Catholic girls' school in the heart of Jerusalem. That's where the, the lines are, uh, you know, very difficult, very difficult to understand. Yes, and, and until you live it, you don't know. We don't know here. You know, we don't a, know. A Christian, you don't know either. I mean, you just are, you're just loving it. It's a holy land for us, too. And so we're in the middle, and, it, and we can be friends with everybody. So Look, in a way, we're isolated. At the end of the day, Stevie, the food's really good. <laughs> Corn beef. I'll tell you, I ate off of all the stands everywhere in the street. Never got sick. My last yeah, night there, I ate at a hotel in Tel Aviv and got food poisoning. You did, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's Taught how, me a lesson. That's how that works. Don't eat in the fancy hotel. I'll just eat the shmarmas on the top of Mount Carmel, and you'll be fine. Yeah. Was there uh, was there anything in in the uh, in the material that that sticks out that surprised you? I mean. I, is, was there anything that was like, wow? I mean, the whole case is... A the wh- guy was sawing people in half. But was, was there anything... And that it wasn't magic mat. Is there anything that... The whole thing, was, the whole that, thing that, was wow. I mean, I suppose the testimony of a woman they're now calling Anderson, and I call Nancy Gale Ringwall in the book, We there was a publication ban on her name. She's the only survivor, the one who fought him with a knife and got away and naked and dying. And, and her testimony, when that girl came into uh, the courthouse in Port Coquitlam and told her story. People were high-fiving her on the way out. I mean, her story was the most amazing one I heard the whole time. Her courage and her common sense and her ability to tell her story without any kind of tears or any kind of, you know, she just told her story and she was fantastic. And her life has become very good. She has a very good job. We, we had to change her name. We had to find a name. The book was already in types, and it was typeset, so we had to find a name that was the same, same number, number of letters. letters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's how she became Sandra Dale Ringwald. But uh. <clears throat> now they're calling her Anderson. Anyway, she, she was the most memorable person I think I ever met. Hmm. Stevie, we're, we're coming up against the, the wall really quickly. You have to do me a favor. Talk to Chris Cobb and tell, <laughs> tell him that you met the man who was once John Lurie. Okay. Okay. I'll do that for sure. I'll call him tomorrow. And he will go, oh, my God. Okay. He'll say, who? You know, he'll, know, he'll, know, he'll know. Then he'll tell you the trouble we used to get into back in the back well, in the day. We could do an expose on Howard. Lovely. Well, it'd be lovely to talk to both of you today. Well, yeah. it's great, great fun. And the book is On the Farm, national bestseller in one nation. About we still, to be have, we still have more than time. one. We still have time. I just want to hype the book some more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is it available in, uh, it's available in paper? Can we download that? Because it's downloadable? Yeah, it too long. Yes, it is. Oh, so it's I can get easy. it for a Kindle or Nook or whatever. Yeah, yes, it's, it's a biggie. It's yeah, that, that's what Howard does. Is, I, I do. I do. I gave right him a print copy, but he probably likes to read it. I have the print copy, but I am downloading. I'm going to spend like nine bucks or whatever. It's cheap uh, to, to just get it downloaded to my uh, my iPad. You do that. I will get I other books too. All right. My iPad. All right. What are you working on now? If anything. Huh. 
I haven't decided. I've, I'm looking at a bunch of different things. Uh, it's hard to cover, you know, to top the ones I've done. Yeah. It's so much fun. So I've, uh, I'd like to write a novel set in Jerusalem. That's what I'd like. Oh, they'll say, I'm I know what the, uh, the publisher will say, do you know how it ends? <laughs> <laughs> That's what they always say. That's why it's easier to sell these nonfiction books, because they know how it ends. <laughs> you should research a Canadian lawyer named Robert Amsterdam, yeah, who okay. lives in London right now. And uh, just he is a he's a book and a half. Somebody should be writing about this guy. Um, what, what allegedly would be the reason? Oh, because okay. he he defended many world uh, people on the world stage that uh, were bad guys. <laughs> Some good, but uh, he's interesting. But Bobby himself is interesting. He's a Canadian, and uh, I mean that's just one little tip for you. Uh, Thank you. I'll uh, send you my book through trust. It's about a Canadian lawyer who. With Befriended Arthur Haley. He's a, oh. And Arthur Haley helped me with that story. That's a good story, too. Ah, we'd love that story. I'm interested in lawyers. So, yeah. yeah, I'll be back in touch with you. Robert Amsterdam, yes. Okay, I've written it down. Okay. okay. She's a and, true and, pro. And John Lurie, don't forget. <laughs> uh, that's L apostrophe H E U R I. I was I was John for 10 years. Leave me alone. I know. It was your alternate alter ego. <laughs> yes. You had many. I had yeah. many. But, but John was quite an interesting guy. Crystal Teller. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> On the farm, Robert William Picton, The Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women. If you don't have the book, get it. It's a big book. It's a good book. Don't let the size uh, intimidate you. It is a fascinating read and great detail. A hell of a lot of work went into this. Eight years did you spend on this one? Yes, I did. How does it support yourself in the meantime? I have a very nice... <laughs> you have a what? Nest egg? <laughs> a very nice husband. Oh, very nice husband. Yeah, I want to get one of those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a hell of a deal. I want to load up on the husband. What did, what did he teach at Hebrew <laughs> University? He, he's a political scientist. Ah. And uh, he's chairman of the political science department at U of T. But he does work on constitutions all over the world. Uh, you nice guys man. you guys got to know Bobby. I'm, I'm, now I'm done. I've done my work for the day. I'm a okay. Yeah, you'll see. Match. You'll contact me. You'll let me know. Does my heart good to hear a woman say I have a very nice husband? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's sweet. That was you bet. producer, Matt Allen. Oh, you bet. He's been married 46 years, and he's as cuter than he 46 ever years. Mazel tov. Yeah. My okay, God. You got kids. I, Let's head up. I don't want to talk mine. about her cats. Don't if talk I, about the cats. If I add all okay. mine up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Five or six good years. I better go. You better go. Okay. <laughs> I'll talk can, to you. can we have you back? Would you come back? Of course. With us? Oh, good. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much, TV Cameron. Pleasure. For okay. You bet. What a great lady. Oh, she's so fun. Yeah. yeah. Chilling, heart-wrenching, shocking, disgusting. Read the book. Bear witness and sure it never happens again. <laughs> yeah.